Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, January 1st, 2016. In three days, Christagenia will have completed, or perhaps will have survived, its seventh year. The new Christagenia website, I still think it's a new website, it's nearly two years old already. Without going into details, we can safely say that our podcasts have been downloaded well over three million times to date, and those are conservative numbers. While Google tells us that these last three months we've averaged over 900 visits a day, our web servers tell us the number is usually double and often triple that figure. There are some technical reasons for the discrepancy, but those don't account for the entire discrepancy. I've noticed that other website administrators have made the same observations. We enter our eighth year at or near the top 200,000 websites in the world. And we've been in that range for about six years now, in spite of many obstacles. And we pray that we will also do as well this coming year. We think that it is pretty good, in spite of all those trolls, clowns, imposters, and usurpers who have actively sought to slander and troll and discredit us. And the fact that the vast majority of people who find our message are destined to hate both it and us. There being 650, I believe is the last time I checked, 650 million websites in the world, the top 200,000 is pretty darn good. After seven years, of Christagenia. We have much for which to praise Yahweh our God, and we are grateful to Him for all of our support in this endeavor, because it would not be possible without our many wonderful friends and supporters. As it has always been, Our goal is to bring as irreproachable and academic a Christian identity message as possible to as many of our people as we can possibly reach. Before beginning this program, I have a problem with the sound or the lack of sound. Welcome to Talk to. Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. You are now joining the call. Recorded live. You are unmuted. If there is no sound in Talk Shoot now, you are muted. You are unmuted. Wow. If there is no 
sounding talks you now, I will have to ask those people, or Melissa will type a message to those people to listen at Christogenia. I would prefer that everybody listened at Christogenia, and perhaps we could eventually simply stop simulcasting our broadcasts at TalkShoe. This is the first part of a new series that might go three, four, five, six segments. I don't know, maybe only two. It, it's addressing feminism, and I'm calling it part one because we have at least two other parts planned. It is probably long past time that we discuss the topic of feminism. Not that we have avoided it, because we think that we have already addressed many aspects of the problem in the weekly Bible commentaries that we have been conducting the past seven years. But perhaps we need specific programs laying out the evils of feminism in society. This is a huge topic with multiple layers of abstraction, and feminism has several forms which keep society locked into a dialectic, supporting one form or another, which is right where our enemies want us to be. On the one side, we have the worship of the female form, the beauty of the female form, and the elevation of women to the status of goddess, which is an ancient pagan ideal that leads to all sorts of perversion and actually leads to the debasement of women. On the other side, we have the Jewish golem of the ugly woman who thinks that she should be a man, which was also found in the ancient world, manifested in the Greek tales of the Amazons and other myths, and which is just as pagan. In the meantime, we have the rather consistent portrayal in the Jewish media of the traditional wife and mother as a battered and abused and oppressed creature whereby the enemies of our God and our race do their best to reduce the important role of the woman in the traditional family to the status of merely being an unattractive lifestyle choice. A few months ago, while we were traveling, in Arkansas, I realized that I should do a series on this topic. When I took the occasion to critique a couple of Bertrand Compare sermons, now Bertrand Compare was a great Christian Israel teacher, and we are indebted to him, but he was a man that made some mistakes. I was going to present his wife, Inez Compare's paper, entitled, Suppose We Are Israel, What Difference Does It Make? Now, I was um, always aware that Bertrand Compare's wife actually wrote some of the papers in the series of sermons which were later published in print under the name Your Heritage by a friend of, and correspondent of mine, Gene Snyder. But not even Gene Snyder 
after much correspondence and, and many um, interesting facts that she shared with me about Bertrand Compare and his wife, not even Gene Snyder ever told me that Bertrand Compare actually allowed his wife to present some of her papers at the pulpit in their church assembly. Now, there is nothing wrong with the pastor being helped in research and writing by his wife, as long as the wife has the capability to do that. And Inez Capere was a capable writer. But the pastor himself has to take full responsibility for the work. If there is something wrong, he certainly cannot pass the buck to his wife. But I was quite taken aback when I played the recording of that sermon to check the accuracy of something in the transcription and found Bertrand Compre introducing his wife so that she could present the paper in the regular assembly. That should be, that must be forbidden, and I am shocked that Compre did not know better. So even the great Bertrand Compare was influenced by what I must call feminist progressivism as opposed to progressive feminism. There's nothing progressive at all about feminism. Here we shall begin to examine why it is wrong for women to speak in public, although it is right for women to be of help to their husbands who may be public speakers. Here is a digression, but it is actually quite integral to our discussion. It's one um, stark example of this problem in my own immediate past. And first I'm going to offer a digression to the digression. If I wrote in the paper that the Persians had black skin and gold teeth, people may think I was nuts, and they would demand that I back up such nonsense with historical proofs. If I refuse to, if I refuse to provide citations or sources, I would properly be accused of lying and inventing my own history. That would make me no better than the typical black skin with gold teeth. A few weeks ago, I encountered a discussion at a popular social media website, and a woman made a statement concerning early American history and ethnography that seemed to me to be absolutely contrary to all reality. So I asked her to document it, to provide the sources for what she was asserting. She responded by immediately attacking me. And when she did, I treated her in kind. I'm not going to be bitch-slapped by a woman. I treated her as she deserved to be treated, and as I would have treated any male who tried to do the same thing. So it ended up that she never provided documentation, and a whole bunch of fools were insulted. 
Another woman got involved in that discussion and tried to help the first woman, not on the basis of the original issue of the original discussion, but by immediately questioning my manhood and accusing me of being a woman hater, simply because I was caught up in a dispute with a woman. She had absolutely no care for how the dispute began or the simple resolution that it may have had. She was obviously a feminist herself who has adopted all the weapons of the Jewish war against white men and she is too stupid to know how wonderful a tool she is in the hands of the Jews while she herself pretends to be pro-white. She would never say such things like that to me in person, and I would not think twice about slapping her silly if she tried. Treat her just like a man. But then some, and, and this is even worse, it goes to the next step of idiocy, some emasculated idiot, a lifelong clown named Jake Parsons, joined the same discussion. And he also tried to reproach me for mistreating women. I asked him why he was holding the panties of a woman he thought he was defending. And I meant it in an allegorical sort of way. Because that is exactly what he was endeavoring to do. Get the favor of the woman against the big bad wolf. I told them all exactly how I felt, but none of them actually even understood anything that I was saying, nor could they understand, and that is because all three of these individuals, the two women and the male, who is not worthy of being called a man, are feminists. If the original woman in the discussion had merely told me where she had gotten her information from, as I requested. I would have thanked her and gone off to investigate. That's all I wanted to do. But she was challenged by my question, and she attacked me instead, responding emotionally rather than academically, and then she tried to hide behind the fact that she was a woman when I confronted her. The Nazis rightfully hung Rosa Luxemburg, and the Jews loved to hold the communist bitch up as an idol and a victim today. This woman deserves the same fate which Rosa Luxemburg suffered. When men allow women into the public discourse and then fail to hold women accountable for their words. Women easily become the lords of society because they can say anything they want and they cannot be criticized. It is the feminization of men that has led to the masculinization of women in our society today. When you see a woman in khakis, it is because the men should really be wearing dresses.
woman speaks in public. She is behaving as a man. She deserves to be confronted as a man. In our modern world, women think that they should be equal, so they want to wear pants. And once they are criticized, then they try to hide behind their skirts. That cannot be permitted. Women cannot have it both ways. If they want to be equal, they must be prepared to take punches like men. Men who insist upon letting women wear pants while at the same time they hide behind their skirts are weak men who, like Jake Parsons, have fallen into the worship of women. These men would be ruled over by women, reversing the natural order of God's creation and leading to the societal breakdown which we witness today. We read in Deuteronomy, chapter 22. The woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto Yahweh thy God. When we examine the role of clothing in the ancient world, then we could understand that passage. We see that garments were used to mark a man's position and vocation in society. That is why Joseph's brethren got so upset about his many-colored coat. It elevated Joseph above his brethren. The scriptures in Deuteronomy 22.5 were not necessarily describing the articles of clothing themselves, but the roles in society that the articles of clothing represented. As an aside, another digression, I recently saw one clown in social media abuse that same passage so as to insist that women should not wear blue jeans. He obviously did not realize that when those words were written, blue jeans did not exist, and men wore what we today may think of as dresses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul of Tarsus wrote, Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, reading the King James Version. As also saith the law, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Where the King James Version has church, the correct word is assembly or congregation. But Paul is referring to speaking as in questioning, answering, and teaching. Since there are proper occasions where women can indeed 
sing psalms or offer prayers or other edifying things while in the assembly, which we see in the context of other scriptures. This is not only a Christian principle, it was also an ancient principle of Greek society. So it was the social norm of the New Testament period, even among Greeks and Romans. Only men participated in the democracy of Athens. Only men were involved in politics, in the Republic of Rome, and in the later empire. Women were excluded from politics. Women did not speak publicly. The 5th century BC tragic poet Euripides in his play Suppliant Woman at lines 40 and 41 has his character Ahithra to say that it is proper for women if they are wise to do everything through their men and we will get on to that momentarily. Furthermore, the the women of Euripides' world in the 5th century BC were not even permitted to look upon men in public. In his play titled Hecuba at lines 974 and 975, the title character states that custom and that word is actually in the Greek nomos, which is the word translated law throughout the entire New Testament. The Loeb Library translator chose to translate it as custom instead, but it should say law. Ordains that women shall not look directly at men. Of course, women can look upon their kinfolk, but in public, women were forbidden. It, it was considered um, promiscuous even for women to look directly at men, strange men, in public. Of course, the Euripides method, as we shall call it here only for the purposes of our discussion, can work two ways. A good woman, and I'm talking in reference to suppliant women, where it says it is proper for women, if they are wise, to do everything through their men. We will call that the Euripides method of the conduct of women. That can work two ways. A good woman seeking to do good can indeed be a positive influence on her husband, help him to do good, and influence him to do good. But an evil woman can, of course, find a weak husband and drive him to perpetrate evil in that same manner. But where the Euripides method fails is when an evil woman is married to a good husband, and such a marriage may not last if the evil woman does not submit to the godly order, which we will discuss in part two of this series. Likewise, a good woman married to an indolent husband may not be able to effect good in society, 
but she should have more patience with her marriage, being a good woman. This last example reminds us of the advice which Peter had given to Christian wives, where he said that such women could win their husbands over with their own good conduct. So when a woman <clears throat> ventures to speak in public, she is assuming the natural role of the man, and she is actually wearing that which pertaineth to man, even if we no longer use clothing today in the stricter manner in which it was used in the ancient world. But there are even deeper reasons why women should not speak in public. The first reason, <clears throat> the first reason is chivalry. Men are accustomed to treating women with the respect that a woman who is fulfilling the natural and godly role which is assigned to women certainly deserves. They deserve fulfilling the role which God has assigned them. They deserve to be treated with all respect. But while a woman who is attempting to fulfill the role of a man does not merit any expectation of chivalry. There are weak or unsuspecting men who are easily moved to defend women simply because they are women and in spite of the actions of the women themselves. So the notions of chivalry are easily exploited by devious women and when women are permitted to speak publicly, those notions can be used against men in order to overturn an entire society. The manifestation of this phenomenon, phenomenon I'm sorry, is readily apparent over the past 150 years of our history, and it still exists today. And that is why we say that most modern men are feminists just as much as most modern women. But there are other reasons as well. The second reason why women shouldn't be allowed to speak in public is lust. Men, from their youth, naturally compete for the attention and favor of women. So there are many weak men who would support and compliment women regardless of their actual words simply because they are women. These same men would then defend a woman against all critics simply because they seek to curry the favor of that woman. The bottom line is this, women, women shouldn't speak because men are weak. In many men, even in most men, the lust of the eyes stops the normal function of the ears and the brain. The lust of the eyes causes constipation of the brain. So, women speakers may get away with all kinds of things that a man would never get away with. And evil women can be used to exploit weak men, 
easily corrupting the society that lets them have their way. This is how the enemies of Christ have operated ever since the Garden of Eden. This is why, for the enemies of Christ, the liberation of women from the patriarchal society was the important first step in undermining Christian society. So while while we have little choice but to continue to engage with women when we encounter them in social media, good Christians should not be offended when we treat them just as we would treat men. If women want to wear the pants and speak as men, they are asserting an equality which is unnatural and therefore they cannot be allowed to hide behind their skirts as an attempt to deflect any criticism of their words. You want to wear pants? Fine. But you can't hide behind your skirt. With this we are going to move on to the recognition of the problem of the liberation of women. And we say liberation rather sarcastically. In one specific area, that of politics, when women run for political office, societies are easily corrupted in the ways which we have already discussed. But what is more subtle is when women are given the vote because they are able to negate the voice of their husbands in the public arena and very often they do just that. The protocols of Xeon are real. Don't let anybody kid you. We've just started to establish that in seven podcasts. We recently began a series on the protocols and it took us a series of seven programs just to begin establishing their legitimacy. We are soon going to begin presenting and discussing the protocols themselves and that will probably take much longer. Critics of the protocols, as we have learned, attribute them to Maurice Jolie and earlier political philosophers. But unless the protocols represent a concrete plan for the future of Europe put into place before Jolie's own time, it makes no sense that the plans outlined in the protocols concerning in this one instance, democracy had been fulfilled so soon after their publication. There was no democratic voting in Europe in the days of Machiavelli, and in most of Europe, even in the days of Maurice Jolie. 
Jolie's Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, the work to which the protocols are usually attributed by the Jews, was not published until 1864. But universal voting for men was not permanently established in France until 1848. And Germany did not have universal suffrage for men until 1871. With the exceptions of New Zealand, which did it in 1893, and Finland in 1906, no other nation had universal suffrage for women until the end of the First World War. In his own time, Maurice Jolie could not have foreseen the rapid attainment of universal suffrage across all the formerly Christian nations by men, or especially by women. But the Tenth Protocol informs us that those who wrote the Protocols planned to implement universal suffrage and the destruction of the family as a means of maintaining their power. There, in reference to their maintenance of world power, they wrote, to secure this, we must have everybody vote without distinction of classes and qualifications in order to establish an absolute majority which cannot be gotten from the educated, propertied classes. In this way, by inculcating in all a sense of self-importance, we shall destroy among the goyim the importance of the family and its educational value and remove the possibility of individual minds splitting off. For the mob, handled by us, will not let them come to the front, nor even give them a hearing. It is a custom to listen to us only who pay it for obedience and attention. So the destruction of the patriarchal family goes hand in hand with universal suffrage and the ability of the enemies of Christ to wield control over all white nations through, through the deception of what they like to call democracy. After the First World War, universal suffrage for women came to Germany as well as the other nations of Europe and here in America and women in Germany began participating in the political process as candidates and office holders as well as voters. National Socialists in Germany were among the first to note the adverse effects which this newfound power on the part of women brought to society. And when they came to power in 1932, they promptly removed women from politics. After the First World War, Germany fell into decadence. Weimar Germany was like Sodom and Gomorrah. Women were elevated in society. Lesbianism and drugs such as cocaine were promoted publicly. Pornography and prostitution were common, and syphilis was epidemic. The National Socialists 
understood that recovery could only be had with the restoration of the family to its proper place in society. And the restoration of the family was only possible when women were restored to their proper positions within the family. While we do not agree in all its points, and we shall discuss those points a little later, we are going to present a speech given by Joseph Goebbels on March 18, 1933, titled German Women. This is just six weeks after the National Socialists had come to power, which shows how important the rehabilitation of the family was to the National Socialist plans for Germany's recovery. It was preeminent. In his speech, Goebbels explains what the National Socialists intended to do in order to change the role of women in society back to a traditional Christian role. Goebbels also refers to a woman's exhibition as the speech was given on the occasion of the opening of such an exposition in Berlin, and Goebbels himself will give us the reason, the reason for the exhibition. This is German Women, a speech by Joseph Goebbels. It is not very long, and it will incorporate perhaps half of the balance of this program. It is a happy accident that my first speech since taking charge, his first speech, since taking charge of the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, is to German women. Although I agree with Treitschke that men make history, I do not forget that women raise boys to manhood. You know that the National Socialist Movement is the only party that keeps women out of daily politics. This arouses bitter criticism and hostility, all of it very unjustified. We have kept women out of the parliamentary democratic intrigues of the past 14 years in Germany, not because we do not respect them, but because we respect them too much. We do not see women as inferior, and this is the Christian viewpoint, we do not see women as inferior, but rather as having a different mission, a different value than that of the man. Therefore, we believe that the German woman, who more than Any other in the world is a woman in the best sense of the word, should use her strength and abilities in other areas than the man, which is only common sense to those who <laughs> righteously observe the creation of God. The woman has always been not only the man's sexual companion, but 
also his fellow worker. And we see that that's the reason why God created women. Genesis chapter 2. Long ago she did heavy labor with the man in the field. That is true. She moved with him into the cities, entering the offices and factories, doing her share of the work for which she was best suited. She did this with all her abilities, her loyalty, her selfless devotion, her readiness to sacrifice. And we're going to criticize Joseph Goebbels for this one paragraph, because we have to disagree with it, and we will explain why at the end of his speech. Looking back over the past years of Germany's decline, we come to the frightening, nearly terrifying conclusion that the less German men were willing to act as men in public life, the same situation we face today in America for 50 or 60 years now, the more women succumbed to the temptation to fill the role of the man. The feminization of men always leads to the masculinization of women. And age in which all great ideas of virtue, of steadfastness, of hardness and determination have been forgotten, should not be surprised that the man gradually loses his leading role in life and politics and government to the woman. exactly what we see today everywhere in Western nations. It may be unpopular to say this to an audience of women, but it must be said because it is true and because it will help make clear our attitude toward women. The modern age, <clears throat> with all its vast revolutionary transformations in government, politics, economics, and social relations has not left women and their role in public life untouched. Things we thought impossible several years or decades ago are now everyday reality. Some good, some noble, and commendable things have happened, but also things that are contemptible and humiliating. These revolutionary transformations have largely taken from women their proper tasks. Their eyes were set in directions that were not appropriate for them. The result was a distorted public view of German womanhead, womanhood that had nothing to do with former ideals. A fundamental change is necessary at the risk of sounding reactionary and outdated, let me say this clearly. The first best and most suitable place for women is in the family, and her most glorious duty is to give children to her people and nation. Children who can continue the line of generations and who guarantee the immortality of the nation. The woman is the teacher of the youth and therefore the builder of the foundation of the future. If the family is the nation's source of strength, 
The woman is its core and center. The best place for the woman to serve her people is in her marriage, in the family, in motherhood. This is her highest mission. That does not mean that those women who are employed or who have no children have no role in the motherhood of the German people. They use their strength, their abilities, their sense of responsibility for the nation in other ways. We are convinced, however, that the first task of a socially reformed nation must be to again give the woman the possibility to fulfill her real task, her mission in the family and as a mother. Now, while Goebbels is not adding God or Christ to the to the equation. He is nevertheless expressing Christian principles and a godly viewpoint towards the role of women in society. He continues, the national revolutionary government is everything but reactionary, speaking about the national socialists. It does not want to stop the pace of our rapidly moving age, speaking about technological development. It has no intention of lagging behind the times. It wants to be the flag bearer and pathfinder of the future. We know the demands of the modern age, but that does not stop us from seeing that every age has its roots in motherhood, that there is nothing of greater importance than the living mother of a family who gives the state children. And of course we would substitute the word nation for state there. German women must have been transformed in recent years. They are beginning to see that they are not happier as a result of being given more rights but fewer duties. They now realize that the right to be elected to public office at the expense of the right to life, motherhood, and her daily bread is not a good trade. A characteristic of the modern era is a rapidly declining birth rate in our big cities. In 1900, two million babies were born in Germany. Now the number, 1933, has fallen to one million, probably speaking about 1932. This drastic decline is most evident in the nation's capital. In the last 14 years, Berlin's birth rate has become the lowest of any European city. By 1955, Goebbels looking into the future, of course, without emigration, it will have only about three million inhabitants. The government is determined to halt this decline of the family and the resulting impoverishment of our blood. There must be a fundamental change. The liberal attitude toward the family and the child is responsible for Germany's rapid decline. We today must begin worrying about an aging population. We see the fruits of Goebbels' vision today. In 1900 there were seven children for each elderly person. Today it is only four. Today there are seven 
Turkish children for each elderly German, or seven Arab children for each elderly German, especially if Merkel has her way. If the trend continues, if the current trend continues, by 1988 the ratio will be one to one. And Goebbels was awfully close. These statistics say it all. They are the best proof that if Germany continues along its current path, it will end in abyss, in an abyss with breathtaking speed. We can almost determine the decade when Germany collapses because of depopulation. We are not willing to stand aside and watch the collapse of our national life and the destruction of the blood we have inherited. The National Revolutionary Government has the duty to rebuild the nation on its original foundations to transform the life and work of the woman so that it once again serves the national good. It intends to eliminate the social inequality so that once again the life of our people and the future of our people and the immortality of our blood is assured. And we as Christians understand it. Only God can do that. But everything that Goebbels says here is correct nevertheless. I welcome this exhibition whose goal is to explain and teach and to reduce or eliminate harm to the individual and the whole people. This serves the nation and popular enlightenment and to support it is one of the happiest duties of the new government. Perhaps this exhibition titled The Woman will represent a turning point. If the goal of the exhibition is to give an impression of women in contemporary society, it does so at a time when German society is undergoing the greatest changes in generations. I am aware of how difficult this is. <clears throat> I know the obstacles that had to be overcome to give this exhibition a clear theme and a firm structure. It should show the significance of the woman for the family, the people, and the whole nation. Displays will give an impression of the actual life of women today and will provide the knowledge necessary to resolve today's conflicting opinions, which were not primarily the result of the contemporary woman's movement. the German National Socialists were trying to inspire the women of Germany rather than force them into anything. But that is not all. The main purpose of the exhibition, The Woman, is not only to show the way things are, but to make proposals for improvement. It aims to show new ways and new opportunities. Clear and often drastic examples will give thousands of German women reason to think and consider. It is particularly pleasing to us men in the new government that families with many children are given particular attention since we want to rescue the nation from decline. The importance of the family cannot be overestimated especially in families without fathers that depend entirely upon the mother. 
They had them in those days, too. In these families, the woman has sole responsibility for the children, and she must realize the responsibility she has to her people and nation. <clears throat> we do not believe that the German people is destined by fate to decline. Goebbels was the eternal optimist. We have blind confidence that Germany still has a great mission in the world. We have faith that we are not at the end of our history, but rather that a new, great, and honorable period of our history is now beginning. This faith gives us the strength to work and not despair. It enabled us to make great sacrifices over the past 14 years. It gave millions of German women the strength to hope in Germany and its future, and to let their sons join in the reawakening of the nation. This faith was with the brave women who lost their husbands and breadwinners in the war, meaning the First World War. With those who gave their sons in battle to renew the people, this faith kept us standing during the need and desperation of the last 14 years, and this faith today fills us with a new hope that Germany will again find its place in the sun. Nothing makes one harder and more determined than struggle. Nothing gives more courage than to face resistance. During the years when Germany seemed destined to decline, a new kind of womanhood developed under the confused veneer of modern civilization. It is hard determined, courageous, willing to sacrifice. During the four years of the Great War and the 14 years of German collapse that followed, German women and mothers proved themselves worthy companions of their men. They have borne all bitterness, all the privation and danger, and did not fail when hit by misfortune, worry, and trouble, as long as a nation has such a proud and noble womanhood it cannot perish. These women are the foundation of our race, of its blood, and of its future. This is the beginning of a new German womanhood. If the nation once again has mothers who proudly and freely choose motherhood, it cannot perish. If the woman is healthy, the people will be healthy. Woe to the nation that neglects its women and mothers. It condemns itself. We hope that the concept of the German woman will again earn the honor and respect of the entire world. The German woman will then take her pride in her land and her people, in thinking German and feeling German. The honor of her nation and her race will be most important to her. Only a nation that does not forget its honor will be able to guarantee its daily bread. The German woman should never forget that. Goebbels goes on to say, I declare this exhibition open. May it reveal all the former errors, the depravity, which was the Weimar Republic and show the way to the future. Then the world will once again respect us.
And we will be able to affirm the words of Walther von der Vogelweed, who had this to say about the German woman in his famous poem. He who seeks virtue and proper love should come to our land. There is much joy. Long may I live there. And Walther von der Vogelweed, I'm probably destroying the poor guy's name, was a famous medieval German poet of the 13th, maybe the, maybe the 12th century. Note that where Joseph Goebbels said that the woman has always been not only the man's sexual companion, but also his fellow worker. He is also making a direct reference to the traditional role of women as it is described in the Christian Bible. We see this expressed as the intent for the creation of women in Genesis chapter 2, and we shall elaborate upon it later in this series. It is a Christian ideal, and I have not seen it expressed in those terms in any pagan writings. However, while we agree wholeheartedly with nearly everything Joseph Goebbels said in his speech, we cannot agree with Goebbels where he said that, along with the man, the woman moved with him into the cities by offering, by, I'm sorry, by entering the offices and factories, doing her share of the work for which she was, she was best suited. Now, this is true, but that doesn't make it. That doesn't make it right. By saying this, and not protesting against it, Goebbels expressed agreement that this transformation to urban life and corporate employment was inevitable, and that it was good. We would contend that it was certainly not good. The traditional role of women was within the household of her husband, and the traditional work of women was to magnify the estate of the family. Traditionally, the family was the center of life for the man and the woman, and the estate of the family was the central focus of the economy. With the rise of Jewish capitalism, in the Germany of Goebbels, as well as throughout the entire world, the corporation has become the central focus of the man and the woman. Both the man and the woman. And the family has taken a back seat getting attention mostly as a leisure activity, and then the television often gets more attention than the children. We may accept our enslavement as a fact, but we must recognize it, and we should not consider it to be good. I don't think Goebbels quite got that. Women belong in the home. In past times, that meant that the woman worked for the betterment of the home and also helped her husband in his vocation. That helped to keep the family unit together. So, in the capitalist system, 
the family has been replaced the family as the center of our economic activity has been replaced by the corporation and the family has become secondary to the interest of those so employed we may have to live with it and a lot of us do there's no doubt but that don't mean that we can't recognize that it's not really the way things should be according to the communist manifesto the less the skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor in other words the more modern industry becomes developed the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class all are instruments of labor more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex now today this Jewish principle which is both capitalist and communist has even been taken so far as the execution of war women that can press buttons rather than fight in actual hand-to-hand -hand combat consider themselves warriors and they wear the garments of warriors the ultimate result is the further feminization of men now we do not want women to run out and quit their jobs no don't do that there are many women who work because the current economy has forced them to work in order to survive or to help support their families and we sympathize with them we sure do likewise there are many older women who work or have careers because of the circumstances of their lives where modern society offered them no valid choices for fulfillment and we sympathize with them as well but we must understand that as a people the children of Israel are in captivity therefore we must also understand that while we are in captivity the things which we do are not necessarily the way things should be done it can be established that those who control our society long ago planned to force women into the workplace by creating inflation and oppressing the wages of men that plan has been very effective and has in turn helped to destroy the family unit as well as attributing to plummeting birth rates amongst whites so we should see that while many women work out of necessity it is not the model for society which we should uphold so if you must work especially in order to help provide for your loved ones your family or if you chose to work because you have no further fulfillment in society maybe your kids are grown and gone you, you, you don't know what to do with your time and that is 
really due to the breakdown in our society, and you choose to work, I would never judge you wrongly for that. But, if you think that women belong working rather than in the home, if you would put a woman out to work because she needs a job, your mindset, and you may not even realize it, your mindset is the Jewish feminist mindset. So some of us in captivity need to work, and some of us need our wives to work. My mother worked, and we were poor my entire life. I wouldn't blame her for that. She was noble for that. But if you think a woman must work, you're being a feminist. There's no doubt. And you have bought the Marxist capitalist dialectic. Many Christians who have only studied the scripture on its surface refer to Proverbs chapter 31 and assert that the Bible approves of women working outside of the household. Yet nothing can be further from the truth. In in actuality, Proverbs chapter 31 describes a woman working for the advancement of her own household and fulfilling the traditional role as a mistress of the household, meaning that she is the manager of the household. Sarah was the manager of Abraham's household, even though Abraham had a steward. From Proverbs 31.10, who can, who can find a virtuous woman, for her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. Why? Because women made the clothing that people wore back then. Today there's Walmart, right? She is like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar, meaning that the woman was out gleaning the fields, working in a garden. She riseth also while it is yet night, and gives meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. She also did the cooking. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So the woman has the right to exercise economic decisions within the household. She considers a field and buys it. She, with the fruit of her hands, plants a vineyard. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. She lays her hands to the spindle and her hands to hold the distaff. She's manufacturing the clothing, making the thread, and probably even selling things that they can make in excess to the markets. She stretches out her hand to the poor. Yeah, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. So it's the woman who's charged 
over the economy of the house, who decides to help the poor. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, and for her all her household are clothed with scarlet, meaning that she ensures that they have proper and, and the best clothing that she could obtain. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The husband is out engaging in politics and in judgment. That's his job. She makes fine linen and sells it and delivers girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. She doesn't lay around on her ass all day watching soap operas. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now there are many women who are older, who are not landed. Their husbands aren't landed, so they choose to work and help support their household. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't ever say that a Christian woman should be working, especially for those Jewish corporations. They should not be. We in society today often have no choice, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. Every Christian family should be landed, should own land, and the men should be engaged. They should work the land, and we will get to that. The men should be engaged, though, in the public life, in politics, in judgment, in anything else that needs to be attended to, as well as working their own their own land and estates, but it's the woman's job to manage those estates while the men are engaged in public life. That's the way society is supposed to be. We have to live with what we got for now, but don't tell me that women are supposed to be out working for some Jewish corporation. We're going to get into the evils of that later in this series. In Joshua chapter 2, we see the account of Rahab working as an innkeeper. And many women did. Women innkeepers are mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. But we must note that Rahab was working her own business and in a pagan society and not a Christian one. Likewise, in Acts chapter 16, we encounter Lydia, a seller of purple, who was also a woman in a pagan society. We don't know her circumstances. Maybe she had to be a seller of purple to support herself in her house, like Rahab was an innkeeper supporting her own house, and that is fine. But that doesn't mean that Christian women should be or must be, and that's the difference, outworking for these corporations. That's not the ideal, and we shouldn't insist on it.
we should understand that capitalism is just as bad as anything else which is Jewish. There's no difference. Anything else which is Talmudic and wicked and detrimental to our race and our white nations. In Ruth chapter 2, because Ruth has also been raised as, as an example of women that went out of the house and worked for, for a living. In Ruth chapter 2, in connection with women and employment, but in Ruth chapter 2, we see the young woman was sent to glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves, along with the other maidens of Boaz to glean under the end of barley harvest and of the wheat harvest. So Ruth wasn't working for some Jewish capitalist across town. Ruth was working along with the other maidens of Boaz on Boaz's estate. What is missed is this, that Boaz was near kin to Naomi, and Naomi, whose husband had died, had joined herself to the household of Boaz, and that Ruth, along with the other young men and women of the household of Boaz, were working the fields which belonged to Boaz. The women in Ruth were working for the increase, essentially, of their own household and family and not for some Jewish factory owner, just like Rahab was working to support her own household and family. And Lydia was also ostensibly working to support her own household and family with her own business. They had their own businesses. They were not, Lydia wasn't selling purple for Avon or, or some Jewish corporation in ancient Anatolia. So these passages cannot be used as an excuse to insist that women hold jobs in a corporate workplace. And that's the point we're making here. A lot of us have to do it because we're stuck in that position. And that's fine. We do what we have to do. But there's a lot of temptation involved putting women in a workplace. And it's very problematical. And it's been a serious ailment in our society and a great contributor to our divorce rates and we'll discuss that later in this program so we don't mean to say that there are not circumstances by which women can work and own their own businesses and properties and operate them but we must distinguish what is in compliance with God's law and word against what it is that we find that we must do because we must exist in an evil world. Our Christian hope is, of course, that one day men and women can again, once again, work together as families for themselves on their own estates. But the current system of Jewish capitalism is not the ideal that we should seek, and it is not inevitable, as Joseph Goebbels seems to have felt that it was and it shall not endure. And that's our first discussion of feminism. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, Billy Roper. Next Friday, we shall resume our presentations of the Epistles of Paul. 
with his epistle to the Philippians. Good night. Call recording has been completed. <laughs>